just a split second, I'm outside my body. But the second experience is so different from the first. And now I'm just tumbling through darkness. So it's more like a Star Wars movie. It's like I'm traveling through space as a soul. And I get to this place that I call the mid-station only because I knew that there were levels. <laughs> my guest today is Dr. Lottie Valentin, a physician, a medical medium, an ancestral healer, and an author of Med School After Menopause. And she survived two near-death experiences that gave her psychic abilities, and she's here to talk to us about that today. Welcome, Dr. Lottie. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. So could you firstly just give us a little bit of background about what it was like for you growing up, and then why don't we jump into your NDEs? Yeah, so I was actually born and raised in Sweden, which is in Scandinavia or Northern Europe, just underneath the Arctic Pole. The reindeer lives in my country, <laughs> Santa Claus, right? So growing up in, in Sweden was uh, obviously different because it's in Europe. Uh, my father was a physician. I had three older brothers and my mom went back to work when I was 12 and worked as um, like a hospital floor administrator. So I was always surrounded by medicine growing up. All my parents' friends were were all back then in because the, I'm born in the 1950s. So I grew up in the 1960s. And back then, it was unusual for women to be doctors. The women tended to be nurses. So all my parents' friends, the man was the physician and their wives were nurses. So it's such a classic setup, almost sounds like a movie. So I was always surrounded by medicine. It was always, medicine was the number one conversation in my house. So growing up around that, um, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor. And I would tell my dad, when I grow up, I'm going to be a doctor. And he would look at me and say, no, don't be a doctor, be a nurse. <laughs> and it was just the time period that I grew up in the 1960s. So anyway, then I grew up, went to high school. Uh, the advisors in school said, oh, you're really good in the science subjects. You should do the science major because we actually major in high school. So when you get out of high school, you go straight to medical school, straight to law school. There is no four year of college required before you go. We do a lot of those prereqs in high school. And so when you go to high school in Sweden, you can come out of that being like a daycare provider or um, an automobile, like a mechanic. So we, we, get a lot of, um, we get a lot of training in high school compared to here in the United States. Everybody wow. sort of requires you, go, you, you know, go straight to college and then you get to decide what to do. So you're much younger when you go into you know, starting med school over there. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't go the science line because I looked at the other kids in my class and there were maybe two or three girls that are, you know, young ladies that were going to go the science line. And I said, I am not going to have any friends if I do that in high school. You know, being a teenager, boyfriends were much more important and having friends were much more important. So I majored in languages and business. And then I, <clears throat> then I met an American who was an exchange student in my high school. And I ended up marrying that man about three years later. So I moved to the United States when I was 21. And I had started at Stockholm University and I was studying economics, which I thought was terribly boring because this wasn't who I was, right? <laughs> so I studied economics and then I went to, uh, to the United States and I worked my first year here in the United States. And I worked as 
the secretary at the bio biomedical engineering department at Boston University. And I was typing research papers all day long for these professors that were doing research. I had no idea what I was typing. I, it was just words, right? So I'm just typing along. And I remember asking the professor, what kind of pig is a guinea pig that has long hair? Because I thought it was a real pig. I had never heard the word guinea pig. That's not a word you learn in an English class, right? So, um, I mean, it, they had so many laughs because I never knew what it was I was actually typing. And then I, they convinced me I should go to Boston University. And they said, the professors there said, oh, you're, you have such a good knack for computers. You should be an engineer. And I said, no, I don't want to be an engineer. And then again, I said, you know, maybe I should follow my dad's advice and be a nurse. But the language barrier was so great. I didn't think I could handle those science classes. So again, I major in business. I major in business and computer science. And then I graduate and I work for IBM as a programmer and systems analyst. So, and I was a complete atheist. I didn't believe in anything. I didn't believe in angels, the spirit world, life after death. That was just not even part of my vocabulary. I didn't, a mediumship. I would have laughed if somebody said, let's communicate with the spirit world and you know, I'm going to connect you know, with, my, with my loved ones in the spirit world. I would have laughed at them and said, you're crazy. Like, that is impossible. That can't be. So I was very scientific, very logical. <laughs> and so here I am working as a programmer. And then um, I took a leave of absence because we got my husband's job, took us to California, and we had our first child. And so then I was at home and then I had a second child. And then I had a third child. <laughs> and that's when life really changed. And that's when I started, I had the near-death experience. So I can um, tell you that story if you want me to continue. If, I don't know if you had any questions about anything so far. No, that's, that's good. Yeah, but go, go ahead. Let's hear about the, the right. first NDA. So, so then I had had two children, two boys already. So they were six and three and a half at this point. And I was pregnant again. And I, was, I gave birth to um, a baby girl, which was not a normal birth in itself. So... We lived in California at the time in Huntington Beach, and I gave birth in the eastern part. If, if people know where Disneyland is, it's in Anaheim, California. And in the eastern part of that city, Anaheim, that kind of borders the desert. And that's where the hospital was where I gave birth. So I'm contracting about three minutes apart. So the baby's, you know, my, the, my second baby had been born in like two hours. So as soon as I had a contraction, we headed to the hospital. And I was already, you know, close to delivering that baby and a 7.4 earthquake hits. So I'm lying on this table. Luckily, the people, not many people have heard of this earthquake because it was centered in the desert. But this hospital was literally the last building before the desert. And it was a new hospital. So it was built on rollers. And so that building, I mean, it just rolls right back and forth because to take the <laughs> the, the, the impact of the earthquake. So I'm lying on this birthing table in the birthing unit and the midwife, the nurse, my husband, everybody's just leaning over me. I would have flown off the table because that's how much that building shook. And just, you know, we're just petrified that this is the moment I'm going to die. That's what I thought because there were these windows all the way from the floor to the ceiling and then all those ceiling tiles that, you know, are common. And I, 
I said, this is it. Like these windows are going to cave in or the ceiling tiles are going to cave in and we're just going to be buried in this rubble as everything collapses. So the building just rolled and rolled. We lose all the electricity and, it's, and it stops. And we're all just, oh my God, we're still here. And it's just dead silence. We hear the generators kick in and we have the light of like a night light that you have in the bathroom at night. That was the lighting now. Because this was at, you know, early, early in the morning, maybe five o'clock in the morning or something. And so it was dark still outside. And, and then uh, my contractions actually stopped because when you are, you know, if you're in the jungle and that lion is coming to eat you, and you're giving, you're about ready to give birth. You're going to stop giving birth, get yourself to safety and then give birth. Cause it's just, you know, instincts where all animals will do that. And things will just stop and you get yourself to safety. So my labor actually stopped. And then about half an hour later, it started back up as I started, you know, saying, okay, we're okay. Gave birth to my daughter and we had a second earthquake hit and that was a 7.2. And now and we're like, okay, well, this is really bad, but it's not as bad as the first one. So we know it's okay. You know, they can, can get worse or it can get a little better. Right. And then they finally gave me, you know, the baby to hold. And as soon as they gave me the baby, I'm just like leaning backwards, yelling for my husband, take the baby, take the baby. And I was in this excruciating pain. And then um, there was all these uh, blood clots that came out and they started massaging my uterus and you know, today I'm thinking, I mean, there's not much they could do. They were operating on generators at this point. So they put an IV in and that helped contract the uterus down. And then I stayed an extra day in the hospital. So after 48 hours, they said, well, it looks good. It looks like the bleeding has slowed way down. It looks like a normal flow, like postpartum. And we're going to send you on your way. So they sent me home. And then I had all these pain. It's, I mean, imagine swallowing a bowling ball. And it's just this very kind of heaviness and it would just hurt so much, like down my legs. And I would constantly have to sit down. Anytime I picked up the baby, it was so much pain. And I'm thinking, why is this birth so different? I mean, I did hemorrhage afterwards, but that stopped and I couldn't figure that out. Well, then about 10 days later, uh, my friends are having a baby shower for me in the park. because I had a girl and I had two boys before and they were all excited about getting in me give me all these girly clothes and everything. So I get there and I feel like I have to use the restroom. So I take my kids with me, we go to the restroom and this enormous blood clot comes out. I mean, it's oh. like the size of the baby's head. I mean, it's just huge. And I'm looking at that in the toilet going, oh this is God. not, <laughs> this is not normal. So I take my kids, I run back, tell my friend, I have to leave right now. Something really is really, really wrong. So I'll, I drove home, which was only about five minutes from this park. My parents were there from Sweden visiting uh, to help with the kids and everything. So I tell them what happened and they call my husband. He comes home. We go to the ER. I get to the ER. They come in. They do a manual inspection. And they say, well, everything seems fine now. There's not much blood coming out keep me there for two or three hours. And they say, well, it looks good. We're going to send you on your way. Uh, could have been a second lining that came out. We're at home next day. I go to the bathroom. It's like five or six in the afternoon. Same thing happens again. And my husband calls the hospital and I'm yelling at him, lying on the bed. I am not going. The bleeding stopped. They're not going to do anything. It's pointless. 
So they decided I should see the doctor the next morning in Huntington Beach, where we lived in California. Next morning is Friday morning. I go to the doctor. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning. Same thing. Manual inspection. Well, it doesn't look like you're bleeding that much now, but, uh, you know, no blood work, no ultrasound, nothing. Just a visual inspection saying, doesn't look like much is happening. Sent me on my way. I go home. Same thing happens again. Four or five o'clock in the afternoon. Another huge blood clot comes out. So we said, all right, well, this is the third day this is happening. Something is definitely wrong. So we went back to the ER. Same thing. Doctor comes in, says, well, nothing much seems to be happening now and leaves me there for observation. We, we'll keep you here for two or three hours. We'll see if anything happens. So I'm just lying on this table. Door is closed. I don't have a bell to ring. This is 1992. And I start bleeding. So I'm thinking, finally, I'm finally bleeding. I'm in the hospital. They're going to figure out something is wrong. So I'm lying there not thinking much about it. I'm like, well, this is, you know, this is the fourth day I'm bleeding now. So, and then a nurse comes in to check on me. I swear the spirit world sent her because the timing is, you know, had she been there a minute or two later, I probably would have died. I mean, it's that, it comes down to seconds. So she comes in, she opens the door and she has this, you know, terror look on her face. Like, you know, it's like her jaw is on the floor. And she's just, oh my gosh. And I can hear the call on the loudspeaker, you know, OBGYN, stat, to the ER. So I'm thinking, wow, this is good. Finally, they figured out something, you know, is wrong with me. So she cleans up everything, puts new paper down. The, this middle-aged doctor comes literally running full speed with a younger physician in tow, which is probably the resident. And I'm thinking, I finally get a doctor that's middle-aged. He's been around the block. He's going to know what to do. And he did because he saved my life. So again, we do another manual inspection. So they said, all right, let's take a look, see what's happening. Another huge blood clot comes out. So this is the fifth time I'm hemorrhaging in three days, right? I've lost so much blood now. So I try to sit up and tell this doctor, I don't feel too good. So he knew exactly what had happened because, you know, when he came in, he said, how much have you been bleeding? And I said, well, I've been bleeding since Wednesday. <laughs> this is my third day that this is happening. So he knew I had lost a lot of blood. So as soon as I said, I don't feel good, he's, he just pushed me down on the table, the whole room filled with staff, nurses, and he started tipping the table backwards. My head goes towards the floor. My feet goes up in the air. And you know, I got a nurse on my right that's got the blood pressure cuff and she's quoting my blood pressure as it's dropping. And I got a nurse on my left trying to place the IV that is going to save my life, right? And I'm lying at this table. I feel like I jumped out of an airplane and I'm just doing a free fall. And it's probably my blood pressure dropping, right? So I just feel like I'm falling through space at this point. And I'm thinking, wow, what's taking her so long? Why can't she get that IV in? But the veins are collapsing because you, once you go into shock, your veins collapse. And when you go to the ER today, now, they often place an IV with just, you know, water, basically, you know, body water. And it's so they have, they have access to the vein, right? So they have, now they're already in your vein. If something goes south when you're in the ER, now they can just inject because you have a port now into your vein. But back in 92, they obviously didn't do that because <laughs> they waited until you were almost dead to place that IV. So I'm lying on this bed going, wow, what's taking her so long? Why can't she get that IV in? And as I'm thinking that, the nurse on my right yells, 50 over 15, hurry. I mean, Ooh. at this point, I, 
barely have a pressure to support the heart, right? And then it just keeps falling. And it was shortly after she said that, that I knew that I was dying. And that was very different from that earthquake experience, right? Or I've been in an airplane that also fell out of the air. But that is very different from the thought of thinking, oh my gosh, this is it. I'm going to die, right? And a lot of people have been in these scenarios. You're almost in a car accident and then you can somehow get out of it, right? You can almost see your life flashing before your eyes. This was very different because it wasn't knowing that I was dying. I knew that I was dying at that point. And the atheist that I was, what do I do? I said, well, if there is a God, <laughs> this is my chance. So I said, then, oh, God, please save me. I have three children under the age of six and they need a mother. I was thinking my husband, my husband can never do this. <laughs> like there's no way he can raise three kids. So I just pleaded with God to save me. And it was shortly after that. I just got pulled out of my body. So then I find myself floating, you know, like in the middle of the room, kind of above my body. And the first thing I'm thinking is, wow, how can I be outside my body and still be me? Right? That's the first thing. So you are still you and you know that you belong to that body down there. Like, oh, that's me down there, right? And I didn't, I, some people turn around and they see themselves on the table. I didn't see myself on the table. I'm just kind of like out there. And I, but I know I belong to the body. It's almost like people talk about the silver cord and things like that. It's almost like you're on a string, right? Because there is this knowing you belong to the body. But while I'm outside my body, first of all, it's this complete peace. And, you know, you just feel, wow, this is so nice. There's no pain. There's nothing. You're just kind of there. But also there was a knowing that there was no time in that state. And that I could access any information, past, present, and future. There was no time. It drove me crazy for years trying to figure out why is there no time over there? And, and then as quickly as I had gotten sucked out of my body, I get sucked back in. And I don't even have words for it. So then the next day, so then, of course, they keep me in the hospital and I'm hooked up to all this stuff. And the next morning, uh, the nurse comes in and she says, oh, you know, did anything unusual happen yesterday? Uh, you know, in the ER. And I said, no, no, nothing at all. I was petrified. I figured if I tell her what I had experienced, they're going to lock me up in the psych ward. I'm never going to see my children. So I was just, no, no, because I didn't believe in any of it, but I still had that experience. I'm wondering, what is this? Was that my brain hallucinating or what was that? So I'm lying in this hospital bed and then I hear my sister-in-law who had passed away about 10 days earlier and I hear her, she's in the left corner of my ceiling and she says, everything's going to be okay. And I'm just lying there thinking, okay, la yesterday I thought I left my body and I had this whole experience. And now I think I hear my sister-in-law, like what is happening? And it wasn't until my mother-in-law came to visit. I didn't even tell my parents. I didn't tell my husband. I figured everybody, they're going to think I'm crazy. So I couldn't even tell anyone. And then my parents kept changing their ticket. They stayed for another three or four weeks. I just slept. Because, I, because of the shock and having too little blood. and Then my mother-in-law came and I call her my earthly spirit guide. And she was very spiritual. And she said, what is going on with you? And I told her about the experience. And she said, oh, what you had was, it's called a near-death experience. And she went out and she got the book uh, by Raymond Moody, Life After Life. Yep. And so then I started understanding that this was some kind of experience that other people had had. So at least I didn't feel as kooky now. 
And then, you know, over the years, she helped me, you know, understand that there is life after death and all these other things. So then I got really sick and it took me six months to, um, well, after six months. So she, my daughter was born in June. By that Christmas, we all got pneumonia and I didn't get a blood transfusion. So the first thing they wanted to do was give me a blood transfusion. And I'm looking at the doctor in the ER and I turned my head and he said, so he just yells, don't move because he was so afraid I was going to go back into shock. And, I'm, and he said, I'm going to have to give you a blood transfusion. And I look at him and I say, do you have to give me a blood transfusion? And he said, why, why don't you want one? Do you have like a religious belief that prevents you from taking a blood transfusion? And I said, no, but everybody that gets a blood transfusion gets AIDS because it was that big AIDS epidemic. Mm. And we didn't have any way of testing the blood back then. I said, I have three kids under the age of six. I was young. I was, you know, 34 years old. I was in perfect health. Otherwise, I don't want to wake up, you know, six years from now when I have with three kids say, having AIDS. So he said, okay, we'll see what we can do. You're young and very healthy. I just studied nutrition. I had a nutrition degree. So I was like super healthy. We didn't even have white sugar in the house. It was that crazy. So I'm, so he said, all right. I'm going to give you some supplements. We're going to give you some medication, make sure the bleeding stops and inflammation or, you know, infection and all that. And so we, he said, it's going to take you a little bit of time, but, it, you know, you're making blood quickly. They kept me an extra day in the hospital and said, you know, you're, it seems to be working and you're not going to feel too good for the, the next three months or so. And I basically just slept. I mean, that's what I'm told. You, I just slept a lot and I was freezing. I had my hands and feet were ice cold under a wool blanket in June, July in California. So, wow. you know, I had like no blood and I couldn't keep my head on a pillow because my head would be pounding because there was so little blood in my body. And I was so dizzy. I couldn't walk from the bed to the living room without passing out. I would, you know, everything would just sort of black and by, you know, taking 20 steps, wow. just throw myself on the sofa to get into the next room so I could at least talk to people now and then. So after six months, we all, all the, everybody got the flu. And my husband was in a new job. And here in the United States, you have to wait three months for the insurance. And this we want to pay some astronomical amount, which you can't when you're young and you have three children, you're in your 30s, you can afford that, right? So many times you just wait. And my husband kept saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, I said, yes, I'm getting better. I'm sitting up now. Like, just take this new job. Well, he ended up taking three new jobs that year. Because oh. right when this whole birth happened, his company got sold and he was like a regional manager. Everybody got laid off from top to bottom. And so he just had to take the first best job. It's not like you have a lot of savings when you're in your early 30s and have three young children. So he took the best job he could. And then three months later, when we were just about to get insurance, he would get another job offer and then he would take that job. So that whole year, the entire year, we had no insurance that first year. So at Christmas, we all got sick. We went to a walk-in clinic. Everybody had like pneumonia and the flu, ear infections. We all got antibiotics. And then eight days after being on antibiotics, everybody was well again. My boys, my husband, I was even sicker. So I go back to the walk-in clinic and they said, wow, weren't you just here? And I said, yeah, um, like eight days ago. And they said, all right, well, something is not right with you. So we're going to check your blood. So they come in, they do a blood test. They come back in. I'm just lying in this. I'm there forever. And they come back in and they say, all right, do you have leukemia or AIDS? 
you have like no immune system at all. Like it's not, you don't have any white blood cells. Wow. And I said, well, the good news is I don't have AIDS because I refused the blood transfusion, but something happened with the bone marrow. And so I wasn't making blood. I mean, so people can get this thing. It's called a plasta, idiopathic aplastic anemia. And it's when the bone marrow gets suppressed and you're not making, you know, platelets or white blood cells, red blood cells, everything gets suppressed. So they said, all right, well, you have no immune system. You have to go to the ER. And I said, I am not going to the ER. So they said, well, you can die if you don't go. And I said, okay, uh, I promise I will go if I get worse. Any, any, any smidge of being worse, I will go. So they sent me home with, you know, steroids and they injected me with antibiotics and who knows what and sent me home. They called the next day and said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm a little bit better. <laughs> so they said, okay, good. And I managed to come out of that. And then two months later, now I start bruising. So I get, so now, now it's May. In May, so it's 11 months after I gave birth, I bump into the baby's changing table and something that would give you a bruise, so like a small coin. I had a bruise that spanned my entire hip. It was purple. Oh. And so did I understand that something was wrong after growing up in a household of my father always talking about medicine? Yes, of course I did. I understood what was going on. And so I said, all right, I'm going to have, and I was getting pneumonia again. And it's May. Nobody gets pneumonia unless they have an underlying condition. So I, I get myself to this private doctor. We still didn't have insurance. And I get there and he's listening to my lungs. And then he sees the big bruise and he jumps in front of me. He looks at me and he said, how did you get this bruise? And I said, I bumped into the baby's changing table and he doesn't believe me. He thinks that my husband's beating me now. So luckily I had all my kids with me and he raises the shirt and all my kids and says, okay, I believe you. And I said, look, I'm telling you the truth. My father was a physician. This is what happened to me, but we're getting insurance July 1st. I only have six weeks to go. And I have. I said, I am so much better now than I was six months ago because I put my children in the car and I drove myself here to get here to see you. So, of course, he gives me all the labs, which I don't do because if I had done those labs, I would have had a pre-existing condition, which means I wouldn't get insurance July 1st. And I said, all right, well, I have the labs. And I just took all the medication and again, I managed to come out of it. But what happened was that you know, that whole bone marrow suppression that lasted for a couple of years. And this is how my second near death experience comes about. So during this whole time, I'm really sick. My watch has stopped. We can talk about that later and uh, how you have this electrical interference and I hear the spirit world talking. So two years later, uh, I'm, every day I have this issue, right? I can't even stand up to cook for my kids. I have a stool in the kitchen. I remember my 90-year-old grandmother had this stool in the kitchen so she wouldn't have to stand up. So I, I got this stool so I could sit down because making pancakes would take too long. I would pass out so I could sit and flip the pancakes. So, and I had this feeling that the soul was always trying to leave, right? Just like during my near-death experience, every day, several times a day, I would be, nope, we're not leaving. I'm going to hold on to you. Like come back in the body. And I would sit down, put my head down, get some more blood flow, blood flow going. And many times in the middle of the night, I would wake up and have that, you know, pounding head, take my head off the pillow because I was just blood deficient, right? I didn't have enough blood that going through my system. So two years later, same thing happens. And, you know, it probably doesn't take much because when you already doesn't have 
any that amount of blood, right? So your your blood is you know keeping your blood pressure high. So people, uh, for example, who have POTS, the uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia, so they bend over, they come up too quickly, they get dizzy. It's very common, especially after the pandemic. We see a lot of more people with that. And many times you just need more salt, you need more more fluids, you need more electrolytes so that you can keep that blood pressure high to so you don't pass out. Well, I didn't have any of knowledge about anything back then. So I was constantly, you know, on the verge of passing out and constantly had to sit down. So, I mean, if all it would take is for me to be dehydrated that day to have another near-death experience because it was already was deficient in the blood because of the bone marrow issue. So here I am in the middle of the night. And I always joke that they saved me too quickly the first time. So I didn't get the full effect. It didn't, it didn't, I didn't have a course correction for my life path. So let's do it. Let's have, let's have her have another near-death experience so we can really get her on track. So here I am in the middle of the night, which happened often. I wake up, my head is pounding. I feel all lightheaded, feel like my soul is leaving. Take my head off the pillow. And I just, and it's just, I just, again, just a split second, I'm outside my body. But the second experience is so different from the first. And now I'm just tumbling through darkness. So it's more like a Star Wars movie. Like I'm traveling through space as a soul. And I get to this place that I call the mid-station only because I knew that there were levels. So there were levels above me and levels below me. It's like you go into a skyscraper that has 100 floors and you say, oh, I need to go to floor 50. You get off of floor 50. You know there are floors above you and floors below you. You just you're not seeing them. But it was that kind of a sensation that I was at this midstation. And as I get to this place, I'm just in a soul, like a soul, like I don't have a body, right? I'm just in a soul. And I hear the most beautiful music. But you can't make this music on earth. And I I tried. I sat at that synthesizer for days with over 200 sounds. Is there any sound that sounds in a remotely similar to the sound I heard, that you can't make this music on earth because it's more beautiful than that. So I hear this incredibly beautiful music and I'm thinking, where is this music coming from? And so I look to my right and I see this little log cabin and I always laugh. It looks like a Swedish sauna, like the things we see, but that's what I see. I see this little log cabin. So I, I look at it and I open the door and I look inside, but it's empty like, wow, that's so strange. So I look to my left and I see another log cabin and it looks just like the one on the right. It's like a mirror image. So I opened that cabin and I was like, wow, it's empty. And I still hear the music, but then I become aware of the light. So this bright white light. The best description I have is if you take like a spotlight, like a stadium spotlight and shine it through fog, right? So it's this kind of, you're just immersed in this bright white light, but it's coming from behind me. So as I'm turning around now I, and face the light, there is an outline of angels in this bright white light and the music is coming from the angels. And I'm completely aware. I'm like, I'm looking at angels, but I don't believe in angels, right? So I'm very aware of it. So why am I seeing things that I don't even believe in, right? So the music is coming from the angels. But then there is this awareness, this, this light that is the divine source, that we come from the, from the light. We are light. We, are, we carry the light within us. We return to the light when we go on, you know, when we leave this earthly realm. 
but we come from that. That is the divine source. You can call it anything. I call it divine source because as soon as you label it, you know, God, you get stuck with the religious dogma, right? People wrote the Bible. God yep. did not write the Bible or divine source did not write the Bible. There were people that decided what should be in the Bible or any other religious text on the earth. And, you know, if you go back in the day, we all had, we had all these goddesses and the divine feminine. Well, then we got Christianity and we got rid of all the goddesses and we all became, you know, men. So depending, you know, if you do the research on that, I'm not an expert on that at all, but uh, it really clearly, you can see that you can't call it, you can't label it with a religious name. So that is divine source. But then I become aware of two spirit, call them the spirit guides. There's one on my right and one diagonally to, diagonally to the left in front of me. And they're talking to each other, but I can hear them. So the one on my right says, oh, what is she doing here? She can't be here. She has to go back. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, wait a second. It's been two years. And I'm still trying to process my first near-death experience, right? So I'm saying, no, 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 wait a second. How can I be outside my body and still be me? You know, how does this work? And the spirit guard on my left says, well, if I showed you, right, you're not going to remember because there's something about what we get to remember. I think there's some kind of mechanism, control mechanism. So then all of a sudden, it's like I'm standing on the moon. It's, imagine just a movie screen just appear in front of you or, you know, it's just all of a sudden you just see things. And I see the earth as if I'm standing on the moon looking down on earth. But then around the earth, I called it, so this is, you know, 1994. We didn't have internet barely back then. I see, it's, I call it the silvery, glittery fishnet. So it was this kind of diamond-shaped, silvery, sparkled, sparkly, glittery net around the earth. And I call it the fishnet because I grew up in Sweden. And there is, you know, the archipelago in Sweden with over 20,000 islands. And so I spent my summers on an island in the archipelago with no electricity, no running water. And we, I would row the boat for my grandmother as she laid fishnets in the ocean and would catch fish for the family to eat. So early in that early morning sun, as I'm rowing, you know, I'm like seven, eight years old, rowing this boat. And she lifted these fishnets out of the water. They're kind of diamond shaped. But when the, you have the water droplets on that, it sort of shimmers and sparkles in this morning sunlight. So I'm looking at this. And I feel like I'm standing on the moon looking down on earth. So to me, it looks like the sparkling fishnet because that's, we, you know, now you can Google it and say grid around the earth and all these images come up. But we didn't have that then. I combed the San Francisco library for any information on this, could not find it. And so anyway, so here I am. And he says, everything on earth is connected to each other, but everything on earth is connected up to this grid. And with that information, I got sent back. And so all these years later, so that was 1994, right? It's since the past three years, maybe, like since about 2020, it all makes sense. So that's how long it's taken to put all those, that little message to understand what that really meant. What is the grid? How does it work? How are we interconnected to each other, right? Now we have more knowledge about that and quantum physics and, and how that all and how we are actually all connected to each other. So that was my, that was my near-death experience in a nutshell. <laughs> I know it's a long uh, story. In your first NDA, your deceased sister-in-law spoke to you, it was who, who had died 10 days before. 
Was that when you started hearing other voices from the spirit world as well, or did that not come till later? Was it just a one-off? Yeah, so it started the day after. And a year later, before my second NDE, uh, I was lying in bed in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, I become aware. I couldn't see him then. I, now I see, often see the spirit world, mostly. But then I didn't, I didn't see them. I just knew. And I was like, wow, my uncle is here. And he said, I have passed on. I've gone to the other side. I've, you know, I'm leaving. I'm just here to say goodbye and checking in. And it was my mom's brother. And I knew he had had lung cancer, but not that he would be passing away. Nobody had said anything. Uh, I think it was uh, kind of a surprise that he did go at that time. And so the next day I'm thinking, okay, my mom's going to call me and let me know her, her brother passed away. Nobody called. I was like, wow, this is so strange. Another day goes by. So this was the night from Sunday to Monday. Nobody called Monday. Nobody called Tuesday. Wednesday, my mom finally calls. So she's, you know, doing the chit chat. How are you doing? How are the kids? Blah, blah, blah. And then she finally says, well, I have, you know, some sad news to share. And I said, yes, your brother passed away three days ago. And it was just dead silence on the other side. She was like, how did you know that? And I said, he was here. So then she said, oh, wow, you're just like my mom. You're just like grandma because grandma always knew when people passed away. So and I have memories, too. My grandma, when we were on this island and she was so upset one day, I was probably only about seven. And she said, you know, my friend so and so, I don't remember who it was, uh, passed away at 2 a.m. because this bird flew into my window and, and told me. And I said, okay. And so we have to, we had to get in this little boat, this little rowboat with an outboarder motor and drive 15 minutes to an island, another island that actually had a payphone on it. And so that she could call her friend and, and get confirmation. And sure enough, she was absolutely right. But I think there was also more experiences that I never knew about because I was so little. My mom probably knew a lot more, but there's something in the family about that. But um, so the spirit world, you know, was came in. It started that mediumship started literally the day after my first NDE. I started here in the spirit world. And you mentioned that there was there's electrical disturbances that occur. Is that when they're nearby? I so the, the watch story. So it was I think so. It was nine months later. So my watch, I had put my watch on. Um, you know, during the fall, I think it was September or so, and. It, it died after like, oh, like five or seven days. My watch stopped. And I was so, I was so mad because it's a watch. Now I don't have time. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. So now I didn't have a watch, but I also wasn't well enough to go get another watch. And I was like, well, I'll just wait, you know, until I get well enough. Well, it was nine months later in March. I finally had the energy to put the kids in the car, drive to like the store, go inside. The watches were right inside the, the entrance. Picked out a watch, paid, and left. And I, I wore that watch for about five days, and it stopped. And I said, wow, it was so much work to get that watch, you know, because I was not well at all. It was when the bone marrow suppression came, was coming on. So I said, all right, I'm going to wait a week or two. Then I returned, went back, returned the watch. And the ladies, you know, at the, that desk where you return things said, oh, that's so strange. We haven't gotten any other watches. But go ahead, pick out another watch. So I got the same watch worked for five days and it stopped like wow bad luck must be some problem with quality control with this particular manufacturer 
So went back a third time. And again, the ladies at the desk were, well, we haven't gotten any other watches back. That's really strange, but go ahead and pick out another watch. So I picked out a different brand this time because I, I thought there was definitely a manufacturing issue. So I pick out a different watch, different brand, wear it for five days, it stops. So then I tell my friend, my friend comes over with her kids so my kids could have some playmates. And I tell her about the watch and she looks at me and she goes, it's not the watch, it's you, honey. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? It's me. So she says, well, you're the one that's doing, killing the watches. So, but now, you know, we know if you, you know, go to INS, International Associ Association of Near-Death Studies, there is a lot of research that has been done uh, for a long time and probably 50, 60 years. And a common problem is actually that the watches stop and people get sick. Uh, people get divorced within seven years. Um, people have a hard time with loud noises and all these different things that have physiological and psychological issues that come um, after somebody else had a near-death experience. And the watches is one of them. So it took me 12 years. So when my daughter was about three, I had 16 or 17 watches in my drawer. I would just get a new watch. And then, so I started saving the watches. I said, well, you never know. They might start ticking again. So after a while, so th when the watch died, I would put it in a drawer and I would, I would always get a watch with a second hand. So I knew if it was working. So, wow, this one is ticking. Look at that. The second hand is, is moving again. So I would wear that and I could wear it for about a week or two. So after, after about one year, my watch lasted about a month. After two years, it lasted about two months. After three years, it lasted three months. And so it took me 12 years for my watch to take almost to the day, 12 months. And at that point, I said, 12 years, that's it. My watch worked for a year, I'm healed. <laughs> so, and that's when, now I've heard the spirit world for 12 years and I would get warnings about accidents. I saw my kids remotely, had remote, you know, remote, um, my kids almost got run over by a truck and I saw it even though I was, a half hour car ride away. So they were in San Francisco and I was in East Bay, San Francisco, where we at home in the house. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, okay, well, the kids are going to be home in an hour or two. I should start prepping dinner. So my middle son was uh, about 17 and my daughter was like 14. So he was driving now. And so he's in the car, he's driving, his girlfriend is in the front seat and my daughter's in the back seat. So I'm walking to the kitchen and all of a sudden, it's like I'm standing on the street in San Francisco. I see our car. I see my son waiting at a red light. He's trying to make a U-turn and he's waiting for the light to go. He's, uh, he's going from yellow to red and he's going to whip the car around before the other cars come. Well, he's waiting for that yellow red and he says, okay, now I'm going to go because the other cars are stopping. Well, there's a truck that's coming in the opposite direction and he's stopping. So the truck is accelerating to get through the light before it turns red instead of slowing down. My son is counting on that the truck's going to stop. So he whips the car around, but the truck isn't accelerating. So I see them turning around. I see my daughter getting flung in the back seat as he's dust stepping on the gas pedal. And I, I mean, it's like an inch away. I see the truck like right behind our car. And I see them speeding down the street. And my heart is pounding and I'm just sitting down, you know, at the kitchen counter saying, oh my gosh, thank you, spirit world. Stay, thank you for saving them. And I just, it took me like 10 minutes too, before I could even start prepping dinner. I knew they were safe. I saw them speed off. 
And then, you know, two hours later, they come home. And I knew they were really hungry, so I let them eat first. And as they finished their food, my daughter looks up at me and she says, Mom, we almost got hit by a truck. And I look at them and I say, yeah, I know. I saw you on Embarcadero. You made a U-turn at, at the red light. And the kids just, just stop. <laughs> Because they'll make up a story that they thought would be palatable to you, no doubt, <laughs> being teenagers. So it is, you know, already fascinating how, you know, we have so many abilities that, and, you know, there's so many stories like that, especially moms seeing their, knowing that their kids are going to be in danger, right? They see them in danger or they know they're going to be in danger. So that interconnectedness, that, that grid that I saw and how we are all connected to each other and we're all connected up and out. I could not, you know, it, that is exactly how things are working. And that's my work today is, you know, to help people heal and uh, help them understand why it is they're sick and how they're connected to their ancestors. As much as I would like to say we are individuals uh, and we're not affected by our ancestors. And I'm not talking about DNA. I'm talking about their actions, reactions and interactions with other people, their own trauma, their own emotional trauma. We are absolutely connected to that. And they actually even know that um, they see the DNA. They have done um, research on Holocaust survivors. And they can see now in, into the third generation, the grandchildren of those Holocaust survivors, that there is uh, changes in the DNA. And they've identified some genes like the FKBP5 gene and some other genes. So they can see we actually transfer trauma via the DNA to our offspring. So those emotion, those emotional issues that our grandparents had, you know, grandfather served in the war, he thought he was going to die, all that, you're carrying that on your DNA. But also we are connected through quantum physics because we are entangled through quantum physics. So the people that won the, got the physics Nobel Prize last year, the three physicists that proved that two atoms meet and then whatever, then they separate the atoms, whatever happens to atom A affects atom B even though they're separated, right? Mm. So it's like, think of this. And then if the atoms have babies, they're also entangled. So if you have an apple, they meet the other apple. You put one apple in Australia and the other apple in Sweden. Whatever happens to apple A in Australia is going to affect apple B in Sweden. And that's how it is. And we know that from all the intention experiments, like Lynn McTaggart's work since that started back in 1980 or 1990. So we can see this. I mean, we can prove it scientifically, but... What I'm doing as I work with that, uh, with people with ancestral healing and the entanglement that we have with our ancestors. So it's fascinating because this happened in 1992 and 94, but it wasn't until basically, you know, 2020 or 2018 or something that things finally started to make sense. So it always takes a long time for things to fall into place. You don't become a medium overnight, right? It takes years to develop it, takes years of meditation, takes years of listening to the spirit world. You mentioned something about uh, when you're in the, when you crossed over in this, into the spirit world after your NDE, that there was no time, but it took you many years to kind of wrap your head around that. Did you, what did you work out? Yeah, right. So, oh my gosh, it drove me crazy. So I had the experience 1992 or 1994, right? And then we moved to San Francisco year 2000. And so it was in the early 2000s between 2000 and 2004. And my kids were going to school in the city. So I was in the city every day. I had drove them to the city and the San Francisco Public Library, which is a huge library, was five minutes from their school. So I would go to that library and look for anything 
any information on that grid that I had seen, any information on time. I would read Stephen Hawking's books on time. I would skip those crazy math <laughs> math calculations. Yeah. It's like, I have no idea what you're talking about here. Skip that. Just give me the English text, please. Could not figure out, you know, why is it that there is no time on the other side? But now, I mean, if you li listen to the physicists, they're like, oh, there's no time on the other side. It's, it's just an illusion, right? We have the illusion, just like we have an illusion that we are separate. We, when we come here to have this earthly experience, we're under the illusion that we're separate from our ancestors and what they did, all the things they did wrong and treated people wrong has nothing to do with us. I'm separate from them. No, we're not. And I work with, I work with a lot of, I work with people all over the world, but I think it's especially fun, uh, you know, when you work with somebody who's a psychotherapist, a physician, counselor, and, and then they say, like, I don't understand why I have this issue. And then you point something out and put all the pieces together for them. And they say, wow, I do this for other people, but I couldn't see it in my own life. But we're so entangled with, you know, first of all, we have so many emotions about, you know, our parents or siblings or however, you know, raised us and the environment we were in and school issues growing up that we can't quite see it and we can't put the things together. And it's not until you start looking at the whole family. Well, tell me about your grandparents. Tell me about your aunts and uncle and who ran a business? Who didn't treat their employees right? Oh, there it is. And you can see how these patterns of how other people were treated by somebody else in their family, but that is the burden they're carrying. It's, it's, fast, it's absolutely fascinating because we we're, we're under the impression that we're completely separate and independent and we're not related to these crazy relatives of ours. Everybody has crazy relatives. I don't, I have, there is no such thing as a perfect family. Everybody has a crazy relative. Everybody has somebody in their family that when you were a little kid and you said, you know, what about Uncle Billy? And your mom turns to you and says, we don't talk about Uncle Billy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, no, no, we're not bringing that up. Grandma's here now. Right. And we sweep all those things under the carpet. And it's those unresolved issues of our ancestors that were swept under the carpet, the wrongdoings the traumatic events that get swept under the carpet that nobody ever resolves, that's what gets passed down. But you, it doesn't mean, you know, if you have a, a crazy family, there's a lot of trauma in your whole, like all your family. It doesn't mean you're carrying all of that. No, you, you picked like maybe three or four things out of that. Somebody else got another three or four things. I feel like it's a division. You're up there in the spirit world and it's we say, all right, well, you know, I need a life where I'm going to learn about these things. And you need a life where you need to have a mom like this. And I could be your mom and do that for you. And we write these soul contracts. And then we come down to earth and we have no memory of that. It's all gone. And then we just go through life and try to jump over the hurdles as they come along. But we're so connected to our ancestors. But we think, but it's an illusion. We're not. You know, yeah. at some point after your second NDA, something you must have decided that you were going to go to medical school. Tell us about that. Yeah. So it was, so after 12 years, right, my watch ticked for an, for an entire 12 months. I'm like, that's it. I'm healed. And I, I knew that I was, now I was well enough. I could actually move on with my life. It had been a long, long time. So, you know, I started like a kid's quality toys business online back when there was no templates for making a website. You literally had to be a programmer to 
you know, I just read an HTML for dummies and then put it together in like a day, right? Because I had the coding experience. So it was easy for me to make that work. I literally started my business on a sample floppy drive. <laughs> wow. So software. And that's how I just, you know, used that and started my business because I thought I was never going to be well. And then and in 2004, I was like, wow, I made it. Like I'm healed. And I, my kids were in the city at school and I got on the computer and I said, you know, when I go back to work, I can't go back to being a programmer systems analyst because now I was a completely different person. And I knew I had to work with healing people and that was really my calling. And I had always wanted to do that. So I'm thinking, well, maybe there is some online degree I can do, you know, build on my nutrition degree that I had gotten back in the 1980s. So I stumbled across this website and it says naturopathic medical school, become a naturopathic doctor. They get trained in pharmaceuticals. They get trained in botanical medicine, acupuncture, homeopathy, you know, supplements, nutrition. And it's like the whole holistic package. Then I realized it's a real medical school. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. That sounds really cool, but I can't do that. And there's only five of those medical schools in all of the United States. As I said, four-year degree is a, a real medical school. You become a real doctor. And I mean, if I did it, I'm in my 40s now, right? So if I did it, there's no guarantee they would even accept me. And I got to do all the prereqs, biochemistry, like the chemistry, biology, physics, math, just to do the prereqs, right? So I can even apply. So I'm like, okay, that, fine. I'm closing the computer. I'll go start dinner. And I'll look tomorrow. There's got to be something out there. So as I'm walking towards the kitchen, I become aware of the spirit world dropping in on me. So the spirit world says, you have to go to medical school and you have to be a doctor. And you have to come east and west. I'm like, okay, east and west. That's kind of naturopathic medicine, like old and new kind of. And uh, you're to write two books. No, wait, three. And, and I also knew that... Um, you know, how am I supposed to do this? <laughs> and they said, you're all, so they also said, you have to bring messages to the people. I'm like, Matt, what are you talking about? What am I supposed to write about? Like, I'm not thinking of myself as an author or a writer, never have. And, and then they say, you know, bringing messages. I'm like, what messages? And they're like, don't worry about it. When the time is right, we will tell you. For now, just focus on getting your doctor degree because you need that degree for the work you're here to do. So after listening to the spirit world for 12 years, having gotten warned about accidents and people dying and people being sick, I mean, I could talk for, for hours, right, about all the different things that happened. And I said, okay. And within two weeks, I was enrolled. I, it was right before, it was two weeks before the community college started, started. So I was enrolled within two weeks and I had to start from the beginning because I was a business major as an undergraduate. So I didn't even have the biology. So I had to take high advanced placement high school biology <laughs> to get into the biology prereq class. So really I'd start from the beginning. So I did all those classes and uh, then applied to medical, only applied to two schools and was accepted to both of them. And then I went to, started medical school when I was 54 and graduated when I was 58. And that, wow. that is journey. Um, and then as soon as I graduated, um, I went to, so it takes you two months. You take the board, so you take First, you take the, sci um, the science boards two years after med school, and it's pretty much the same as the boards that the regular MDs take. It's all about the science. It's all about anatomy, biochemistry, and all that, phys physiology. 
And then when you graduate, you take the clinical boards and it's three days of exams. And, you know, it's just hours and hours of testing and reading cases. And what are you going to do? You, can, you, you arrive at the scene and you have the four patients. You know, this is what is doing. You have a child that's vomiting and, you know, blah, 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 is dehydrated. You got a woman that's screaming, she's going to commit suicide. And you got somebody else who's doing something else. And you have to then, you know, and you can only read the question, look at the quest, look at the answer, look at the multiple choice answers, select the ones. You basically only have time to read the question once because there's too many questions. You read it, you answer, you read it, you answer, and it's hours of testing. And so that they can see that you're using your knowledge and you're using your your wisdom, right? So you're going to give that child the, the IV because that's the, the craziest it's the most vulnerable. The young child, the seven-year-old, is dehydrated and vomited and had diarrhea in a car all night. So you know that that child's going to go into shock in a second. So you're going to go with the child. So they check to make sure you can uh, triage a situation and know which which person needs needs help first, so you can save the most life. So you do exams for three days. So I did all that, and then it literally takes. So the exams were the first week of August, and it's not the first week of October that you find out if you passed because all the tests are given at the exact same time across all of the United States so that there can be no cheating. And then they have to coordinate the, when they correct the test. So, you know, all, they're all different doctors that sit on these boards and write these questions, but sometimes it could be two answers that might be correct. Right. And so then they have to throw that question out because they realize Half of us answered A and the other half answered B, but both of those answers are actually correct depending on how you look at that situation. So then they have to throw those questions out, but they have to do it for the whole country, right? So it has to be graded exactly the same. So that's why it takes so long. So while I was waiting on getting my license, and I didn't even know if I'd passed my boards yet, I studied craniosacral therapy. And I meet this woman, and, and the class is in San Francisco, but I'm living in Arizona. And she says, we never got to work with each other, but we knew we both lived in Arizona. So I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm like two hours outside uh, Phoenix right now uh, working in a clinic, but I'm come down to Phoenix a lot for like conferences and stuff. So when I'm down there, uh, let's have dinner. So we made up for dinner and it's September. So I'm still waiting for my license. And she says, you know, um, and she's like a high position, like. She's very well, super educated, this woman. And she says, amongst other things, I'm a medium. And I have somebody here who wants to like speak to you. And are you open to receive messages? And she says, all right. I said, okay. And I'm thinking, oh, this will be good. Like she's, there's no way she's going to be able to know anything about me. I grew up in Europe. Like, you know, it's so different. Well, sure enough, she has my mom. And all these messages come through and she says, you have to go to Arthur Finley College. And I'm like, I can't go. I don't, I don't, even, have my, I don't even have my license yet. I have to work. I just graduated. I need money, right? I'm like living on nothing at this point. I just came out of med school. And she says, no, you she keeps saying you have to go to Arthur Finley College. So after the third time, I said, okay, fine. I will go. I will figure out a way. I will get over there. Well, six months later, I was at Arthur Finley College in England studying mediumship. Wow. <laughs> and I had a reading with one of my teachers. And my teacher says, oh, you know, your mother is here. And da-da-da-da-da, she knows everything about me. And I know it's my mom because, you know, we're talking about fishing and, and the rowboats. So 
I know it was my mom. And she said, oh, your mom tells me you're writing a book. And I had all I had was literally an outline of the chapters at that point. I was kind of trying to figure out what to write about and how to, you know, write, structure the book. And she said, oh, your mom says that you're to write two books. No, wait, three. And so that was the exact same message that I had gotten in my living room, right? Walking to the kitchen in 2004. And I have gotten that message also from that friend that sent me to Arthur Finley College. She also said, your mom is telling me you're writing a book. Oh, uh, no, wait, two, no, no, wait, three. You're writing two books, no, wait, three. That message, it keeps coming through. So I've gotten that message four times from four different mediums that didn't know anything about me. And it's always the same message. Yeah, yeah, you're to write a book, no, wait. You know, you're writing two books, no, wait, three. And it's always the same wording every single time. So I'm like, okay, I've written one book, so I got two more. So the next one kind of is it's brewing in my head. And so I think that's going to probably start this year. And I had, a, I had a reading with one of my teachers, Arthur Finley, somebody who doesn't know me. I love having readings with people who don't know me. Uh, and it was right before Christmas. And she said, you're writing a book. <laughs> and I said, well, not yet. I haven't started yet. And she goes, same thing. <laughs> it's in your head. <laughs> so it's brew. So that second book is brewing, but it's going to be very, it's, it's going to build on the first book. The first book is, uh, is about my near-death experiences. It's about uh, the most embarrassing moment in my life, which is really funny. Um, and then the, being on the airplane that fell out of the sky um, it's one of those, you know, like an airplane horror movie when everything flies through the cabin. I was one of, on one of those flights. Wow. It was another moment when I thought I was going to die. And then it has just a lot of things that I learned, stories about how the spirituality came about, how shamanism came about, you know, how do we tune into that other reality? How do we become more intuitive ourselves so we can tune into all this, all this information that is readily available for us? but we don't know how to use that intuitive ability. So that's what I do in the book. I, I try to give a lot of examples of things and how it happened for me. And then each chapter has a little lesson at the end. So to easily incorporate into everybody's life and say, oh, I could do that. That's easy, right? And sort of take them on that journey so that they can develop their own intuitive abilities and uh, sort of tune into the spirit world by just kind of going through and how it happened for me. So the second book will be more about, will be a deeper level of spirituality and, and healing and uh, how we're all connected through time and space. And if people want to ask you questions, Dr. Lolly, are you open to that? And what's the best way for them to do that? So the best way to work with me is you go to drlotte.com, D-R-L-O-T-T-E.com, drlotte.com. And so I offer a lot of different sessions. I work as a medical medium or medical intuitive. I mean, I, I use my intuitive abilities, but I work with the spirit world all the time. Uh, it's not something that I cannot shut off at this point. You know, I work with somebody, the spirit world is there. Uh, and so they work with me. Uh, so I work as a medical medium or medical intuitive, whatever you want to call it. And uh, I work as uh, remote, like remote health consultations to help people. Because I get a lot of people that they've been to the doctor, they've been around the block, and they tell them there's nothing wrong with you. and then they finally land on my screen and I'll say, no, I know what you have. Th this is your problem. This is how you're going to fix it. Mm. So it's kind of fascinating because I feel like the spirit world sort of guides people like go over here. She'll know how to help you. Uh, and then I do 
uh, a fun session, a really fun session that's called Messages from Your Spirit Guides. So I could, I have not been able to draw my whole life. And so I'm on Orthophrenia College and they say, oh, you know, you should take an art class. You can draw. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. I can't draw. I've always wanted to know how to draw. I draw stick figures. Like I cannot draw. I can't draw a dog or a bunny or a face. I don't know how to draw. And they're just, no, you know how to draw. I don't know. <laughs> so during the pandemic, Arthur Finley College has an, a, a drawing class, like how to draw faces, draw the spirit world online. So I take this class during the pandemic. So she draws one face and we're trying to follow along. And she's like, all right, that's it. Now I'm going to put you like work with somebody else and you're going to draw one face. Now I'm supposed to draw a face. Well, of course you draw a face. Like five, in five minutes, you've sketched out this face. You see what it looks like. It's, it's just amazing. But that's the spirit world that's kind of working with you. Once you open your channels, you have all, so much more information available uh, than you think you do. So I do this thing called messages from your spirit guides. And so I see this, I see the spirit guide. Uh, and so I sketch it and it usually takes five or six minutes to get a sketch of that spirit guide on paper. And once I see the spirit guide, I know a lot about the client on the screen because you're like a mirror image or a reflection of your spirit guide. So whatever the spirit guide tells me, okay, you have this kind of a spirit guide. I know you have, um, uh, you know, let's say, well, the funniest one I think is I had a warrior once. I asked the, it's three times. I said, a warrior, you're a spirit guide and you're a warrior. Am I hearing you correctly? Yes, I'm a warrior. I was like, okay. And I'm looking at the screen and I have this petite looking man. And I'm thinking he's probably an accountant. I, he's got a warrior as a spirit guide. What is this? So I tell him, okay, well, you're the spirit guide says, you know, he fights for justice. He fights for, you know, protecting people and He's like, he's a warrior, but he's good intentions because he's doing the right thing. Uh, he can live in the woods for a week with just a knife and he, he is a survival, blah, blah, blah. And he starts laughing. The guy says, I'm a retired police officer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I still work like for justice and corruption and things like that. So it's really funny. I think that's the funniest one. Uh, you know, if somebody has a monk, for example. I know if I see a monk, I know this person is on a spiritual journey. So I already know, okay, so you are very spiritual. You meditate all the time. You're trying to connect with the spirit world. Like it just comes because if I see a monk, I know that that's a reflection of them. So it could be anything, right? So whatever comes in, that spirit guide that is, you have a lot of spirit guides that come and go all the time, but you also have a main spirit guide that's with you all the time. And that main spirit guide is the one that comes in during that session. And it's always a reflection, the deeper reflection of, what that person is here to do, right? So um, they show me things. Sometimes people come to a crossroad and they, they don't know what, you know, I, I'm tired of what I'm doing, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Am I even doing the right thing? And then the spirit guide might show me, you know, like, oh, I see you. You're teaching people, you're guiding people, or you're counseling people, or you're healing people, or, you know, whatever comes through. And then sure enough, that's exactly who they are. And that's exactly what they're drawn to. And so it sort of helps people get on the right track of, of what they incarnated to do. It's, it's absolutely fascinating because, you know, it's just, it's their spirit guide. But then we have spirit guides that come and go, you know, if you're fixing your car, let's say you've never fixed a car before, you might have a spirit guide or a relative that was really good at fixing cars and they come in and sort of gives you these little nudges and you feel really smart because you're saying, oh, 
now I know, I remember, I, I should do this or I should try that, right? But many times it's, it comes from somewhere else. And when I wrote my book, I knew somebody was helping me and because English is my second language. And sometimes I would be, oh, how do you say this in English? And somebody was like downloading information. I didn't know who it was. And it was before um, I had only been to Arthur Findlay College once. So that whole mediumship was opening up and understanding who I was communicating with. And so I get to the Arthur Findlay College and this, the teacher is reading me and she says, oh, you know, the spirit world says you're writing a book. And I said, yeah. And she says, somebody's helping you with that book in the spirit world. And I said, yes, I don't know who it is. And she said, well, the person that's helping you is somebody, he said, it's a man. He says he passed away too young and he studied English in college, but he never worked with English. And I said, I know who it is. It's my brother-in-law. He, he passed away in a car accident. And so I told his, you know, his kid, his, my nieces, I said, hey, guess who helped me write my, my, write my book? <laughs> Your dad. Wow. In the spirit world. And he is the one because he knew English so well. And he, you know, and he was close. He was family members. It was easy maybe for him to connect uh, and downloaded that information. So I would say, oh, that's how you express it. And I, I was like, he would give me the words. Like, no, use this word. That's how you express it. So it's really fascinating. We get help like this all the time. But we think, oh, you know, that's just coming from somewhere. But maybe it's your spirit guide or maybe it's a relative of yours that is actually helping you. But we don't we don't see that because we don't believe in it. Like I didn't believe in it. And so we we sort of tune out and we think it's just us. But they're very actively helping us all the time. Do you have a final message that you'd like to leave people with before we wrap up our conversation today? Yes, I would say, you know, we're all connected. We're all one. We're one human race. We're all in the same boat, riding this boat together. And Everything is divine, and so is every listener on this show. We are a part of that divine grid and the divine experience that we have. Thank you for that. It's been my absolute privilege and pleasure to have you today. Thanks very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.